Hello and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. Pop Screen is the show that looks at the good, the bad and the ridiculous of movies, either starring, by, about, or in this case, all three pop stars. Uh, no, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a writer for Horrified magazine and thegeekshow.co.uk, and I also write inlay booklets for Second Run from time to time. I've been joined this week by... Hello, I'm Aidan Fatkin. Um... I'm also right for the Geek Show as well, and um, I'm occasional, just basically occasional presenter now. So, yeah, you, you can see by me on there. Today, we're looking at the work of a band whose first single was described by the British music show Jukebox Jewelry as the worst record ever made. And <laughs> without wanting to contradict Jukebox Jewelry, whose decisions were, as the name suggests, legally binding in a court of law, uh, quite a lot of people have come to a different conclusion about Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. But also quite a lot of people haven't. He remains probably the most divisive figure in the classic rock canon, which is why I, a conscientious objector in the Zappa Wars, have been joined by confirmed mother's lover Aiden for this review. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd get away with it. (laughs) Mother's lover. Oh, thank you. For this review of 200 Mortels, a film which frankly lacks the straight-ahead common sense we all expect from a man who named one of his sons Moon Unit. <laughs> daughter, daughter Moon Unit. Oh, was it daughter? Sorry, I'd, how, how would I miss the unmistakably gendered name of Moon Unit? <laughs> It still it still gets me at why he named his children that. I mean, I think it's Moon Unit Dweezil, the relatively tame Ahmed or something. Mm. Ahmed, and I've forgotten who the I think it's Diva or something. Yeah, yeah, extraordinary. <laughs> uh, which one of them was born first? Was it Dweezil? I think it was Moon Unit. Oh, I think right. It was Moon Unit. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking Moon Unit is what you've done once you've pushed the envelope a bit with Dweezel. You go full prog baby naming and go with Moon Unit. <laughs> it's so bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the wild world of Frank Zappa. And it is a welcome for me because I think I, I had no doubt heard other Frank Zappa's songs before. Um, mm. But the one that stuck out in my head is the one that I definitely had heard and remembered was Who Needs the Peace Car before this. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I did like um, that. I liked that song, but for some reason I'd never really delved further. Well, I'm probably the more experienced Frank Zappa because I have, I, mean, I wanted. I don't want to brag about it or anything, but I have a kind of extensive knowledge of mm. Zappa's music. So um, so I've been a big fan for a very, very long time. And it was only when um, I discovered Graham was doing pop screen that I decided to bully him into doing 200 motels. <laughs> yes. Um, so, that, so that's how it pretty much got started. I, I, I felt that we're going to need to do 200 motels because we, we, I did this during um, the Eclectic Musical special. You years did, yeah. And back then I felt like my reviews were, well, firstly, it was a bag of nerves back then. Um, mm. If I remember correctly, I was very nervous when it came to presenting myself with public speaking and whatnot. And it wasn't until um, 
like a couple of years after that where I started to get more comfortable with it and um, 200 Motels was always one of those films that I wanted to revisit and talk fully because honestly I think it's one of these films that deserves an analysis a proper one yeah because I, I mean uh, it, it is so strange looking back on that first year or two with Klexica and I know what you mean I remember the first time I sat down and thought there is absolutely no way I'm going to be able to talk about movies for an hour which is odd as mm. that was never a problem for me in social situations uh, if anything, the problem was shutting me up about movies for an hour. But... <laughs> same here. Same, same. Whenever I'm with friends, it's exactly the same. So, yeah, um, I think one thing then that I should say before this, that although I can't possibly claim to be anywhere near Aiden's power level on this, um, I did listen to a fair bit of Frank Zappa in the run-up to this. I listened to good, good. the whole thing of... Um, of Freak Out. Um, no, wait, not yeah. Freak Out. It was uh, We're Only In It For The Money, the one with the Sgt. Oh, Pepper's parody sleeve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I listened to that one as well because I hadn't um, heard of We're Only In It For The Money. And it, I don't think it's my favourite record. I think largely because just that early 60s sounds I just find very primitive for me. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just, just that's just purely my taste of music. But I think it's only until like the later sounds of the Zappa would develop, like into progressive rock and hard rock and um, comedy rock, that kind of thing, where it starts to get a bit more interesting. Yeah, I also listened to Hot Rats, which would, would you say is, that is considered his best? One of, yeah. Because um, that, if you ask me what album, you know, you're a Frank Zappa fan in, which album would you recommend to get me started into his music? I would always go with Hot Rats because it's easily one of his more accessible records. It doesn't really have a lot of experimentation to it. I mean, it does, but it's, but it encompasses so many like musical identities, and it's so bright, vibrant, and colourful. So, because um, you know, and a lot of his well-known songs are a few of them are on there, like Peaches and Regalia, and uh, oh, Peaches Tim. and Regalia is great. I love that song. Mm, it's just fantastic instrumental music, and besides, it has some just terrific noodly work from like electric violin solos to saxophone yes. outbursts. It's, it's, it's a brilliant record, and I honestly can't recommend it enough if you haven't listened to it already. The thing that I was thinking when I listened to Hot Rats is that, obviously, as you say, it does go off into a lot of different paths with instrumentation mm. and genre, but it's bass. It's a kind of a jam-driven blues rock album, and mm, I would yeah. never have cited that as something I enjoyed, but Hot Rats made me think that maybe the problem is not that the genre is bad, it's that the genre is unbelievably hard to do well, which on mm. the plus side means it's not the genre's fault, but on the downside means most of what is produced will fall short of this standard. Mm. I, I, yeah, and I think, because with me, I'm not a progressive rock lover. Um, me neither, I think part of, the yeah. problem, part of the problem that I have with the genre is that, firstly, I find it very pretentious. Mm. Most of the time, it's why I don't like bands like Yes or... King Crimson or any, anyone like that, because I, I just can't really enjoy like obscure lyrics about surrounding sci-fi. Yeah. But with Zappa, yes, he has elements of progressive rock, but obviously his lyrics go into much deeper, weirder territory that honestly you can't really fit into that other camp of progressive rock. I, I don't think that does him a service at all, really. Mm-mm. 
Yeah, and you mentioned that he was seen as a pioneer of comedy in rock, and that is obviously, you know, part of his main legacy. There is a bit in 200 Motels, without getting too far ahead of yourself, when Hmm. an actor playing uh, Jeff Simmons, who was, was he the bassist in The Mothers of Invention? I think I think he was briefly. Um, they've had a few bass players, but I think I think he only played with them for a couple of months or something like that. I, I I don't quite know him that too well. Yeah, he he left just before this film was made, so there's kind of a satirical cartoon in the middle about Jeff mm. realizing that he's far too cool and heavy to play comedy music. Yeah, uh, <laughs> which is a nice petty way of getting back at an ex bandmate, I guess. <laughs> mm. Do you think, though, although it has kind of, it does set him apart from, as you say, the kind of pomposity of prog rock, which I totally agree with you about, it puts me off as well. But do you think the comedy tag has kind of put people off? Zappa has kind of been a bit of a burden in some ways? That's a good question. I would say yes in areas, because when you listen to a record like um, Cheeky Booty, for example, Mm. which came out, I think, 79 or something like that, um, because a lot of that, a lot of the lyrics on that record, and I think that was the first one I listened to, and that is also a great album, but a lot of the lyrics on there are just incredibly cheap and smutty. Yeah. So yeah. It, it is an um, it's a record that it just attacks everyone and everything through like either humour or like, you know, some legit criticisms. I mean, just read the lyrics to a song called Bobby Brown Goes Down or Jewish princess, and you'll get what I mean. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's, it's disgusting, yes, but it's also kind of enlightening. I mean, that was one of the things that is great about we're only in it for the money and that it used humour. And at, at the time, rock was massively sort of vanishing up its own ass in a lot of ways. The humour must have made it seem almost immature to some people at the time, but the humour in we're only in it for the money now stands as being a really prescient really insightful attack on the naivety of the hippie generation now yeah because i remember there's a song on there called uh, mother people mm. where and originally this was censored in i think we're only in it for the money but there was a, a uncensored version on a compilation that was released a couple of years back but in the song mother people there's i think the lyric Better look around before you say they don't care. Shut your fucking mouth about the length of my hair. How would you survive if you're a live shitty little person? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the kind. Of, that's kind of how Zappa was so far ahead because he would incorporate elements of yes, provocacy really into his subjects. Mm. And I think that's what. And I think that's how I can personally find myself attached to it because it's just so thought provoking. I think it's when you look back at Zappa's career and you start to read up on it and you read a lot of the battles that he had with censors over some of this stuff, it's really easy to sympathise with him. Like, even if you do think that his lyrics are kind of smutty and childish from time to time, you look at something like um, We're Only In It For The Money had one song. Which one was it? Um Let's make the way to turn. Let's make the water turn black because there's a reference. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a reference to a waitress coming over with a pad, and the record company thought, "Oh, that must be a reference to sanitary towels." And it's like, no, she's got a <laughs> notepad. She's got a notepad like waitresses do to take your order. It's like, how filthy must your mind be to go straight there? 
over that, that person's probably just overthinking it. Like, very, very... <laughs> so by 71, he'd fought a lot of these battles. He had, I think it's fair to say, been proved right at this point that the mm. hippie thing was just an image. So he'd got a bit of kudos from that. And he decides to cash in his checks by making 200 motels, which is an interesting mm. decision, is it not? And the funny thing is, is that I've seen people on, I think, Letterboxd describe 200 motels as, oh, blimey, must have been in a lot of drugs when he made this movie. Mm. But the thing is with Zappa is that he didn't do drugs. He, he was a heavy advocate against it, if anything. Um, so... If anything, I guess Zappa is the drug in this occasion, but yeah. don't really get onto it. Yeah, because I, I was one of my research sources was the writing of Mark Ellen, the former editor of the Word magazine and former enemy staff, who's one of Zappa's biggest advocates in Britain. Hmm. And he mentioned sort of hearing stories about Zappa mixing hot rats in Los Angeles at the tail end of the 60s, where every single house near him is owned by some rock band or some movie star, and they're all like out tripping at 4am, and Frank Zappa is just trying to get the sort of backwards tape effects on a 12-minute jam right at 4 in the morning. <laughs> it's like, it's a sound that, it, when you listen to it, particularly on Hot Rats, it sounds really sort of loose and stonery and improv-y, but it was built up from real clear-headed precision. Hmm, yeah, I mean, I think there's a few moments like that on an album called Weasels Ripped My Flesh, which, firstly, terrific album title. Secondly, it's just so brilliant. I love that album title. The second thing is, is that there's so many segments on that album where he's just experimenting with tape recording and mm. um, just editing, and he, he was a big advocate. He pretty much loved editing through yeah. and through, really. And you really get that sense of it because, yeah, you get some clean cuts on that record, but then you, then it just skips into like something that's completely avant-garde that you just you can't really classify it as music. It's just yeah, it's it's basically what like Lou Reed was doing when he made Metal Machine music. It's just something completely here's something completely whacked out your mind over it. Which is, again, massively ahead of its time. I mean, the only rock band I could think of back then who were doing something in the studio like that would be when you're getting up to the very avant-garde end of the Beatles, things like Tomorrow Never oh, Knows yeah, yeah. and Revolution Number 9. Number 9, yeah. 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 But it, that idea that editing a song as part of the recording process is not something that really clicked in until you start to get into house and hip-hop and other sample-based forms in mm. the 80s. Mm. Yeah, 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 totally. So one of the things about 200 Motels is it, it does have this ethos. There is an awful lot of sort of pausing and rewinding the image, which if you're feeling charitable, is like harking ahead to Jean-Luc Godard's video work in the 80s and 90s. If you're mm. not feeling charitable, it might be because this thing was shot on like VHS and transferred to 35mm <laughs> in an act of almost Tommy Wiseauian format futility. <laughs> it's, I, I kind of love that fact because... Yeah, it, it it gives the impression that, yes, this film was made on dirt cheap budget, but at the same time, it, it, it just shows it, it shows its stripes for everyone to see, really. 
Um, but no, I, I, I just, I just kind of love that fact, the fact that everything's just so seizure-inducing. Yeah. Because you, you get all these bright colours just flashing in your face and it looks like it's been edited by a chimpanzee at times. <laughs> it, it's, it, I, I just kind of love it for that moment, purely for my own gratuitous self-satisfaction, really. So, I would have loved it if he'd have gone the gone with the hallway with the joke and blown it up onto 70 millimeter i mean come on commit to the gag frank <laughs> turn into paul thomas anderson for a second yes yeah. i mean kenneth branner gets away with shooting his poirot films on 70 millimeter and there is absolutely nothing in those that demand 70 millimeter film might as well have frank zappa's camcorder home movies on the format as well <laughs> I would watch that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it almost is. There was another project he did, um, and during the drier bits of 200 Motels, I did thank God that, you know, we weren't doing this instead. There was another film project he did called Uncle Meat. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because that was based on the album Uncle Meat, mm. and that was unfinished for a while. I think that incorporated loads of elements, so he had a lot of his mother's contributors. I think he had Carl Shankle on there who did a lot of uh, the Mother's of Invention artwork mm. as well as, I, I don't know whether Bruce Bickford was there I, I think he might have came later, who was a stop motion animation artist and he, Frank worked with him a lot of the time for a lot of his music videos Yeah. so, and I think did, that fell through, didn't it? I can't quite remember the reason why, I think it must have been due to budgetary reasons. Yeah. Was or... it because it was a totally unworkable idea by any chance? Because the story I've heard is that he showed an assembly cut of it in the early 70s, which was about 14 hours long, and then <laughs> just took it away for re-editing and it never came out. I think there was like a, a VHS in the 80s that had some scenes included as part of a compilation of other stuff, but the whole thing has never seen the light of day. For some reason, on the CD reissue of Uncle Meat, I think some of the dialogue is actually used as the bonus tracks. Oh, right. And so um, I, I can't remember which issue it is. I don't, I don't think it's the most recent one. I think it was like one from the 90s or something like that. But anyway, people didn't really call them the bonus tracks. They call them the pen, penalty tracks because they're that difficult <laughs> to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> Uh, so let's let's just sort of set a bit of the scene of 200 Motels for our listeners. It begins with, um, is it the London Symphony Orchestra? The Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Film, Philharmonic, yeah. 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 And they play the opening credits in through a barrage of, as Aidan says, this kind of psychedelic strobing video effects. Mm. Um, Zappa was one of the early adopters of, like, a classical influence in rock, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, I mean, because he did dabble with classical music later on in his career. I mean, so that like stuff with the Yellow Shark, which was his last studio album uh, before he passed away. And then there was also, he, he did do, a, I think, a couple of records with the London Symphony Orchestra, actually, now you mention it. Mm. So so he, he was very much well-aversed in it. I think he cited Stravinsky as like one of his major influences or something like that. It's kind of a Definitely weird wouldn't. thing for me because yeah. I, I, I've i never, ever listened to a rock song or a pop song and thought, God, I'd love to hear that guy do classical. But uh, I, I do hmm. sort of appreciate when it's done well. I think it's like 
with pop music that has a classical influence, the only way to go is to either go really wonderfully tacky, like that disco mm. version of Beethoven's Fifth that exists, which I adore. Yeah. It's just great. Mm. Or to be very serious about it and do it absolutely properly and imaginatively. It's like in between where you have, as you were saying, all these prog rock bands who just throw in a bit of barb as a dadgy over strings and things. That is so sharp. I bet no one's ever heard a band do that before. That's the stuff I hate. Yeah, I, I mean, I have that issue with their muse. Where... I'm glad you said muse. I was going to say muse, but I thought, am I going to piss people off by saying muse? But yeah, I'm totally talking about muse. I, I fucking hate muse. Anyway, but any, <laughs> but there's a bit, I think, on the second law where uh, Matthew Bellamy uses like this really horrific like string section and when you listen to it closely it sounds hideous i think yeah. it's on like the opening track and it's just like look I, I get you're trying to be edgy matthew but it's just i this is terrible i like stuff like radiohead where it's obviously made by people who appreciate classical music and when they arrange for strings they're clearly mm. thinking you know okay, what, what's something that a standard rock band wouldn't do with a string section? What can we do that's, you know, from a more interesting reference point? But it's just, as you yeah. say, that sort of scissors and glue approach to doing it where you just sort of slap a bit of the Turkish rondo into the middle of a guitar solo and think you're high, but I just think that sucks mm. so much. Yeah, yeah. I think Radiohead is actually one of the better examples of that because... I remember, I think, listening to Kid A for the first time, and obviously it got to the track How to Disappear Completely. Mm. And the string section on that's absolutely gorgeous because it makes, because Tom York and the crew just make it sound so natural and, yeah. you know, it, it, it works. It works as flavour. Yeah, and I, my impression of Zappa, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression of Zappa is that when he did this classical music stuff, he was committing to it. He wasn't doing it to try and burnish his yeah, credentials yeah. as smarter than average rock star he genuinely loved it and wanted to make serious lasting work in that genre yeah 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 absolutely right i mean i never got the impression with by from frank zappa's classical music that he was cheapening his um audience or anything like mm. that i think he just wanted to do it for the sake of it because he enjoyed doing it and um and to be honest you don't really get to see many rock stars do that so yeah 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 you know i, I completely respect him for that I think that maybe people miss that because of the comedy inherent in Zappa's like main rock star persona, which is it's, it's probably why as soon as this prelude with the Royal Philharmonic ends, uh, we have a scene on a game show set with canned laughter, Ringo Starr playing a character <laughs> called Larry the Large Dwarf, and a sexy <laughs> nun played by Keith Moon. And I think I can kind of understand why people don't credit him as being very serious when it crashes into something like that. It, it's it's just something so bizarre that I can't quite accept it. Because I think it, it, it's... He Ringo Starr descends from the orchestra on, like, strings. So you can mm. clearly see him do that. Then you get Theodore Bickell in this, who mm. is a prominent actor in a lot of things. I mean, he worked with John Huston a lot of the time. But he yeah. plays a character called Rance Mohammed, who's like this SS-like officer or something like that. Kind of like a talk show host as well. And he goes up to him and just suspiciously mugs to the camera, just says, um, why is he suspiciously dressed up as Frank Zappa? You know, why? Mm. what's the deal, Larry? Etc. 
And he was just like, well, he made me do it. Um, but he wants me to fuck the nun in the corner, which is obviously Keith Moon. Yes. So it's, but... it's just a matter of, okay, well, <laughs> tonal whiplash for a moment, but whatever. <laughs> Let us take a moment to appreciate, listeners, that when I started this podcast, my first thought was it's going to be so easy to just do back-to-back Bowie films. And I would love to do back-to-back Bowie films. I'm a huge Mm -hmm. Bowie fan, but I wanted some variety. I didn't want anyone, any rock star to appear in more than one film per year other than as maybe the odd Patreon exclusive. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This somehow is the fourth goddamn film we've done with Ringo Starr in. <laughs> Ringo Starr was not the guy I thought we'd have to avoid. Mm. I mean, because what else did you do? It was That'll Be the Day with Mark Cunliffe. Um, yeah, we did uh, A Hard Day's Night with Joe Miller. And he also has a cameo in Popstar Never Stop Never Stopping, which we did. Oh, God, was he in that? Yeah, he's in that. Did, did he? You, I didn't know that. You can't keep Ringo Starr down. Ringo Starr will turn up in any film. <laughs> it's the drummer from the Beatles. I, it's, it's just happening <laughs> because he's like, he's like the one member of the Beatles where you just think, well, he's the one that gets like the shitty end of the stick half the time. Mm. But, then, but then eventually... <laughs> Why is he on everything? And it's funny because when I ask listeners who've heard the Hard Day's Night podcast will know, when I saw Hard Day's Night, my sort of instant reaction was Ringo's the best actor in the group. He's actually really good. But when I said that, listeners, I didn't send it up as a signal to the universe to like Mm. make every single film I review a Ringo star vehicle. Mm. 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 Ringo Starr is, it must be said, very funny in this again. He has, uh, he does a sort of mock PSA towards the end about yeah. a, a government program to resettle itinerant musicians, which the government has called the final solution to the orchestra problem, uh, which God knows what that was piggybacking off back in the early 70s. But now it kept reminding me of those, do you remember those Fatima's next job could be in cyber adverts? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he gave me, yeah, he gave me a very big laugh where um, we get to see Mark Volman and I think it's Howard Kalen, who are known as Flo and Eddie. Um, mm. If you don't know Mark Volman, Mark Volman is the guy with the long frizzy hair and glasses and... Um, I think Howard Cameron's the one that looks has the brown black beard and long hair. Mm. So, um, and they are quite prominent in Two Hundred Mortals, anyway. But anyway, Mark Volman says um, something along the lines of um, obviously trying to get women laid at a party or something like that. And he's and obviously this like if a man comes up to you at a party and asks, um, you know, something very sexual and vulgar, you turn around, you look that son of a bitch in the eye. And you've got to tell them these words. And then it just abruptly cuts to Ringo Starr say, I stuffed a pair, <laughs> I stuffed three pairs of socks and a bar of beauty soap down in front of my pants. <laughs> <laughs> in this, in, in this such a weird Liverpoolian accent. And I, 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 at that moment, it still passed my head when I first watched 200 Motels. But after I watched it on the second time, I picked up on it and just immediately burst out laughing. Flo and Eddie are really strange, uh, not just in this film, but as a kind of part of recording history, because they started off as part of the Turtles, mm, a band yeah, who, yeah, yeah. you know, it was a 60s pop band who had some nice songs, but I would classify as very 
twee. I think they were very much yeah. at the kind of music hall, psychedelia kind of end of things, yeah. the cutesy stuff. And then... Yeah, the, the, yeah, the best known for Happy Together. Happy the, Together, um, yeah. And yeah, the song that's... It's it's a very famous sexy song that's been used in all sorts of pop culture, like um, I think from The Simpsons to Wong Kar Wai. It, yeah, it's, of it, course. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that that prominent of a tune, really. Yeah, it's used very well at the end of uh, adaptation by Spike Jones. I remember. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So they do that kind of music for a bit, and then they splinter off and they become kind of session singers, although they're kind of in the orbit of the Mothers of Invention so much that you feel bad yeah. calling them session singers. It's very strange because Flo and Eddie are lead characters in this, essentially. Yeah, yeah. They're everywhere. They're, honestly, I think you can count the amount of scenes that they appear in, and no joke, I feel like they appear 15 times, like... Like Zappers, like behind them, directing them, just immediately saying, "Well, how much more Flo and Eddie can you get? Really, you can't get for it to get away from them." But I've got to admit, the main problem I have with the movie is that I do not think Flo and Eddie or any of the mothers really are good enough comic actors to like be the focus of this kind of a movie. I think mm. there is there is enough here to make me think that if Zappa had committed to doing something like, say, David Byrne's True Stories, where it's yeah. all sort of a stream of consciousness stuff from his imagination with no real plot, but it has proper actors who can really do this. It could have mm. been really good, but it, the the fact that it's like his bandmates acting, it does give it that kind of in-jokey feel, which is unfortunate, I think. Mm. I, I, I think no, I completely understand it. I mean, and especially something like this where a lot of it is nonsensical comical vignettes, sometimes that does get to a point where it does get on the irritating side. Mm. Like I said, Flo and Eddie especially, I, I, I mean, I have nothing against them. I'm sure they're lovely people, as is. But, but they are just, they never shut up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the part of the, the, the comedy stuff that I think works best, and this, I think, is interesting considering the criticisms that we've acknowledged that some people have towards Frank Zappa's music in general. Mm. But the stuff with the groupies, while oh, yeah, yeah. a Frank Zappa film directed film will probably never pass the Bechdel test. That's something that I accept. But there is a kind of earthy honesty in the way that the groupies talk about men and are allowed to be critical mm. of men, which I think makes it feel more egalitarian than just the mothers of invention singing about groupies, which the records can be kind of like that. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny you bring up the groupies because, um, you know, it, it's just a matter of, uh, I've forgotten the point I was going to say. I, th I think it, it, there's just an idea with um, Zappa's comedy music that that's just really accepted, really. Mm. It, it just helps to clarify on that yeah yeah and i like i say i think it does help that you've got like a place where women can look at the band and go that one's too fat that one looks old that one looks weird yeah and it's the, not the, the, like a one-way yeah. street really yeah that that one i have a crush i have a crush on the english drummer yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's stuff like that yeah 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 
I think it makes some of the like sexual lyrics easy to take away. You're part of this like comic universe where everyone is pretty bawdy and everyone is kind of tra- allowed to be transgressive. I think that mm. maybe some people who you know have that problem with Zappa might change their mind after watching those segments. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially when the sex is concerned, because nearly everyone in this movie either want two things one they want to get paid yeah or two they want sex yeah that's it yeah. that's it. there's no there's no in between so and you know i i don't really see it as much as a problem now i i think i did take against like the smuttiness when i was much younger and when i first saw two of the motels but now that i've completely a bit more adversed into obviously gender politics and that kind of thing it, it doesn't really bother me as much um, yeah, and I can I can kind of understand why people think like this is incredibly cheap humor, but at the same time, there's just something so satisfying, something so weirdly satisfying when you have um, Kalen and Howard, uh, Kalen and Volman, sorry, just discuss like penises, and then you have like Rance Mohammed come in and Theodore Beckel's character just immediately says, "You mean a penis?" Yeah, and then just just moves on to the next moment. It's just like, what on earth is this? I mean, I don't think it's radically more smutty than something like, say, Monty Python's Meaning of Life, which, you know, most people would agree is good mm. satirical comedy made by great comedians. You mm. know, it, it, it is part of the zeitgeist of that time in a, in a sort of strange way, I guess. And also, yeah, yeah. a lot of the women in the movie are from the all-girl band that Zappa was producing around the same time, the GCOs. Uh, yeah, yeah. Luz Offerall and Pamela Desbar, the latter of whom wrote some absolutely paint-strippingly raunchy memoirs about her time on the LA rock scene. Um, mm. So, you know, I, I would feel worse about this if he was just sort of getting random actresses from casting calls and just sort of getting them to go through mm. all these scenes, but they are clearly as much part of his circle of friends as as any of the male band members in the movie, you know? Yeah, 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 totally agree. I mean, um, there's a few segments in here that are actually quite memorable, I find. I mean, the moments with Jimmy Carl Black, especially, who, and Jimmy Carl Black, Jimmy Carl Black was best known, he was one of the original members of the Mother's Invention. I think mm. he was the backing vocalist and the drummer originally on Three Cow. Um, but he turns up in this and where um, he sings like a number called Lonesome Cowboy Bert. Yes, yeah. The ho- the horniest cowboy in the wild, wild west, <laughs> I want to add. Um, and that segment is completely memorable. And as well as his character, I find, because um, later on you have Theodore Bikel go up to him wanting to sign like a contract in blood. Yeah, and where and then you have Jimmy Carl Black just immediately express where uh, Ransom Havertz just disappears in a puff of smoke, and, and he just immediately says, "Oh, the guy must have been a communist or something like that." Yeah, like very yeah. thick American accent, and you just think, yeah, this is clearly like a bunch of friends having a lot of fun on set, really, just having a lot of chaotic fun. I think so. Yeah, and the other thing you have to bring in because it does, you know, it's what a lot of the film is is the live performances. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. How did you feel about it? Because a lot of musicals, when you look at it from an outside eye, I mean, a lot of them are pre-recorded, a lot of them are lip-synced. Yeah. You know, that, which is the classic Hollywood way of doing them. 
um, with 200 motels, they're done as if there are concerts, basically. So yeah. a lot of it is live music. So it's not, yeah, it, it's something that I was kind of expecting because I'd, I'd always bracketed it away in my mind before I saw it as being kind of like one of those 70s American rock star experimental projects like Bob Dylan's Ronaldo and Clara or Neil Young's Journey mm. Through the Past, which are kind of concert films on one level. And the, mm. the difference between, you know, so someone like Neil Young, who I am increasingly into, uh, the difference here is that same, I was... Same, yeah. Has, have you found that's been a pandemic thing, by the way? I don't know why, but Neil Young is very comforting in the middle of lockdown. Not so much Neil Young. I mean, I've been a huge Neil Young fan since, I think, the same time I've been Frank Zappa as well. So, mm. um, for me, it's either Blondie or... Um, I can't remember the other... Talking Heads. Oh, those, good those choices. Yeah. yeah. They've been very comforting to me during lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. I've known a lot of people, um, particularly thinking of Blondie there, who have started listening to a lot of stuff around the kind of disco either during lockdown. Mm, it's yeah, like it's it's, yeah. it's like a sort of comfort thing. It reminds you of the world that used to be there. It's very strange. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, so the, the difference, as I was saying, um, with the 200 Mortal soundtrack is that these songs are not familiar to me. But I have to say, it's, it still works. I mean, given the mm. choice between watching the Mothers of Invention act and watching them play music, I was, let, let's put it this way, I was aware which of these was their day job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, because the first, I find the first number, I think Mystery Rush, it's called, just absolutely electric. Yes. It's just a terrific opening song to open it up and then it goes into I think Magic Fingers after that with um I think it's just after or just after the Lonesome Cowboy Bird number mm. that's equally just an electric and infectious number that goes straight into your eardrums and you just can't let go. And I find those moments do work. But it's they're also scattershot within this film that, let's be honest, doesn't make a lick of sense whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is just incredibly yes dated. And just an oddity in general. So it, it's just, it, it's worth it for those couple of moments. But if you're not into like Frank Zappa, just like throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks, then you're not going to like it. Simple as. I think, you know, what one of the things during the film's later stages is that it tries to integrate the music more as a kind of conventional movie score. And mm. I, I, while I see why he thought that was a good idea, I did miss the idea of having skits punctuated by these electric sets. I think mm. that, you know, there's always a problem with non-narrative films, and some of them manage to get past it, but most don't, is that by the hour mark in a film, you're just naturally expecting things to start coming together. And the natural mm. way to do that is to bring plot strands together. But if you don't have a plot, you can't do that. So an hour into a non-narrative film is usually where I start thinking, all right, but what's this for? Where is this going? Mm. And I don't yeah, think 200 yeah. Motels escaped that for me. 
yeah it's a it's a it's a very discernible problem because th there is moments where in like say a Louis Bunuel film that you know you could equally call those like less prop driven or David Lynch for example but I think the difference is with them is that they're just so um they make the atmosphere so like delicate yes and make yeah. it their own exactly so it, they just make it work through the atmosphere and 200 motels it's not to say 200 motels doesn't have atmosphere but when you have creaky sets where you can clearly tell that it's filmed on a soundstage as well, mm. where you can see the open rafters and everything like that, it does lessen the quality of it. Yeah, and I also think that part, part of what you have to acknowledge here is that Zappa's skill as a musician and an arranger and a songwriter and, I mean, a tape editor, you know, any aspect of musical and songwriting production you care to mention, his talent here is extraordinary, but he does not have the same grasp of filmmaking grammar. Someone no, like Lynch no, yeah. or Bunwell, as you say, can create a film where by the last 30 you have no idea what's going on but you can sense that something is building and you know gaining mm, yeah. a kind of tension but he doesn't have that there is there are experiments in 200 motels that work very well but they are just experiments they're the result of someone playing around there's not really a structure or organizing principle behind the actual filmmaking Mm. Because I think um, I think the main idea that Frank got from it is that the, the simple message behind Two Little Motels is that touring makes it crazy. Which is that's the it. title that's, that's of one the... of the songs. Yeah. <laughs> that's all it is. And then you just immediately think, well, okay, but what's the idea, Frank? Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. That, that's, I think that's the question you've got to ask yourself when watching this, because it, it, it is a bit of a major problem that the film has. It's quite odd because he had a co-director for it, and the co-director... I think it's very rarely talked about in discussion of 200 motels, but he's an interesting guy. Mm. Um, his name's Tony Palmer. He, yeah. like Frank Zappa, is a huge fan of classical music and has directed uh, films on everyone from Margot Fontaine to Wagner. But mm. his main qualification for doing this, I think, would be a BBC series he did in 1969 called All My Loving which was a multi-part hmm. documentary that was the first really serious attempt at a history of rock and roll music rather than just, you know, putting something together to appeal to rock and roll fans. It was the first attempt to, to make a sociology of it, to say that rock and roll began here for this reason. Here's where it went. Here's how it became hmm. global. Yeah. I mean, Tony Palmer... He's one of these filmmakers who I would love to dig more stuff about because he's done a lot regarding music. In a way, he's kind of like a proto-Judean temple in a way. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but uh, he's made like two documentaries from everyone ranging from Leonard Cohen to Rory Gallagher. Mm. And that, that are both big fans of those two musical artists. And I hope, you know, someday I get to talk about either of those two films. I think they're Bird on a Wire and Irish Tour 74 or something like that. Bird on a Wire has a very good rep, doesn't it? I'm not a huge Leonard Cohen fan. I don't mind him, but I don't know that much about him. But I've, I've heard very, very positive things about Bird on a Wire from Leonard Cohen mm. fans. Mm. But no, I, I definitely do want to check out more of his stuff because, yeah, this is the one thing, 200 Motels, that's absolutely earwall that, you yeah. know, it's so... It, it sticks out like a sore thumb when you see it in a CV, so it's just... 
And it's part of the weird thing, isn't it? It reminds me a bit of when, you know, people like Alex Cox or Danny Boyle do a movie about rock and roll and they say afterwards all you get is scripts about rock and roll. Palmer's Mm. been hired to do this thing because he did All My Loving. That's clearly Mm. what's happened. And I think Mm. it it kind of misuses him in a strange way because if Tony, I don't know if Tony Palmer's still alive, but if he is, if he was to make a documentary about Frank Zappa now, it could Mm. be a really wonderful thing where he gets to say, okay, this is why Frank Zappa's good. This is why these songs, which have silly titles like Don't Eat the Yellow Snow, are actually Mm. very musically sophisticated and worth digging into and the product of this kind of polymathematic mind. Uh, but here he's it, the thinking seems to be well he's made a film about rock he must be like this crazy cat who wants to let it all hang loose and it's like no I don't think that's no, the guy no. I don't think that's him considering the fact that he made God knows how many umpteen million films about classical music which yeah. I know Frank Zappa is a major classical music lover it still doesn't quite interject properly so mm. and you know it, it's it, it's it's a it's an experiment, yes, but it's not an experiment that works very well. Yeah, I think so. I think as as a sort of summation of my feelings on the film, I would say it did not convince me fully as a film, but it has convinced me fully of Zappa as a musical artist. I will say that mm, definitely because even some of the skits and sketches doesn't quite work. I mean, there's another example with Don Preston who. Uh, Don Preston was originally, I think, the keyboardist for Mother's Invention. Mm. And he, he has a skit in here where he has, he's forced to drink vile foamy liquids. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he obviously was making stupid faces in the camera and stuff like that. And you just immediately think, well, how exactly does this relate to the idea of touring makes you crazy? It's it's that sort of gurning at the camera side of it that I don't like. It's all a bit chuckle mm. vision, isn't it? That some of the performance mm. aspect of it, yeah. It, it it's just you know you just can't quite decipher why that would be the case with two hundred motels because you just think immediately, right? Okay, but even if this is like a series of sketches, there needs to be a point with all of this. Yeah, and that's what I'm trying to find. I'm trying to. I'm very difficultly trying to find the point, and not to say that I don't think it's a film that's not been worth my time. I just think that there needed to be something underlying it to string it all together, and it, that string is just simply not there. It, it it is, I think, a film that people should probably see just to make their minds upon it. Uh, Michael Moore once suggested uh, in a book that Kim Jong Un should watch it saying, if this this doesn't loosen him up, I don't know what will. (laughs) Um, It's funny that you mentioned Alex Cox earlier, because guess who did a movie drone introduction to 200 Motel? Ah! Uh, It's on YouTube, Alex Cox, yeah. Um, And I I love Alex Cox. I think he's just terrific as a critic and obviously filmmaker. Sadly, I kind of wish he, you know, his career hadn't petered out like yeah, 90s or something like that. Oh, she was still making films now, but no, I think it still has its impact on pop culture. This film, in a weird, strange way. So, does Cox does did Cox like it? Because I know there were a few things that he did for Movie Drome where mm. the BBC had bought it in thinking, ah, well, it's a cult movie, you know, we'll make this part mm. of the strand, and they hadn't really checked whether 
you know, there, there's an intro he does for Diva, the Jean-Jacques Benier film, which oh, he yeah, really yeah. hates it, and it comes through very strongly in his intro. But did he like 200 Motels? I couldn't get... I didn't get that impression of hate when watching that mm. intro. I, I kind of... I, 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 do, I don't know. I assume I don't know. He doesn't know as much as I do. But yeah. I like 200 Motels, maybe. So that may be the kettle of fish that we're dealing with. Yeah, I think it's the it's the film made by a teetotal non-drug taking guy that you most have to be under the influence to watch. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a bizarre oddity in his career, and you just really think that yeah, it's worth it if you're a fan of him. If you're not a fan, then I would say stay stay away is like an introductory point with that because it, it it doesn't I don't think it captures his spirit all too well. Well no I'll take that back. It does capture his spirit very much well. It's just the problem, just the sheer in your face nature of it mm. is the problem here. And whether you like that or not is just a matter of like an acquired taste. But let's say Aiden, let's say you're a moron. Let's say you're the kind of idiot who does a podcast based on pop star movies agrees to do an episode on Frank Zappa having only heard a couple of his songs <laughs> watches 200 motels and listens to a couple of the albums that everyone talks about to get up to speed afterwards where would you suggest I went in Zappa's discography after this oh goodness um I would definitely say the instrumental stuff so um stuff like Waka Juwaka and Grand Wazoo okay they are the albums that Honestly, if you're not a too much of a bigger fan of like the comedy aspect of Zappa's work, where you want to see more as like a self-serious musician, mm. um, those are the ones that I would point out in particular. I mean, if you want to get more of comedy work, I would say Shaky Booty is a good one. Uh, Jules Garage is another one that I, I actually quite like, even though that is a rock opera. Yeah. Um, and that's the other thing with 200 Hotels, where with films that you can with music especially you can kind of accept the fact that um you know albums can get away with doing skits and sketches because you know most albums are like 45 minutes long or you know they run much shorter is what i'm saying yeah but then with with 200 motels you here you have a film that's like just under like two hours or say something like that like one hour and 40 minutes where you're going to be sat there for a good chunk of time being weirded out your mind where you'll just feel incredibly alienated and I think that's where Zappa's music does work best through his albums because yeah. you know, they don't go on for that, like an insanely long amount of time. It just helps much better to digest it properly. I think in many ways, wasn't the ridiculously low ceiling on how much music a vinyl disc could store, wasn't that really the best thing that happened to a lot of music artists? As soon as you got to CDs with their 70-minute ceiling, suddenly you got a lot of flab going on records. Mm, yeah, I mean, I get that a lot. I mean, like double albums, especially. Yeah. When you do a double CD album, I find incredibly bad it's, unless you're swans you can get away with that because swans can have this ability to make everything just incredibly like detailed intricate and it's like basically like long form like distinct monk chantering basically with swans because with post rock mm. um so outside of them you're looking at stuff like say the red hot chili peppers stadium arcadium which is another double album and there's a lot of filler on there that I, I just don't think is worth the time. 
Yeah, I think the only person who I think routinely gets away with making double album length records for me is Janelle Monet. Everyone else, I think, mm. you could you could probably do with a bit of a bit of a trim, bit of a trim. Yeah, I I agree. It, it's just like it's a very difficult territory, and you can't quite get away with that if you're like say the most popular rock band in the world or alternative rock, especially. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I suppose that's the other thing. I mean, once you get to a certain level, who's going to tell you your songs suck? <laughs> now, shush, Graham. You don't <laughs> want to upset any, like, Foo Fighters fan or Fred Hodgson. <laughs> there are some bands where I'm very glad that they have a small cinematic footprint, as it means, you know, we can we can mention them in passing. But, yeah, the the fact that... Oh God, I, I did see that documentary Dave Grohl made actually about that music <laughs> studio. Jesus Christ, that thing. S- Sound, Sound City. I, I think I got, and I don't mind the Foo Fighters to be honest. I have seen them live, but I did watch um, Sonic Highways, the tour, the documentaries that he did where every city influences like his music or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. And, it, you know, he says it's, like, quite inspirational and everything like that, and I'm just sat there thinking, well, it still sounds very uninspired, doesn't it, Dave? It, it doesn't <laughs> quite have the punch, you know? Sand City's just, like, my nightmare of being stuck at a party for two solid hours with those kind of middle-aged music guys who play you a song on a CD and then play you a song sounding exactly the same on vinyl and go, I mean, it's like night and day, isn't it? You know, it's two completely <laughs> different experiences. It's just that for two hours. Oh, good. It's the Danny Baker school of um, <laughs> teaching. <laughs> yes. No, seriously, Danny Baker did, a, I think, a TV uh, programme where he's comparing vinyl, and he uses Frank Zappa's Hot Rats as an example of vinyl. Oh, yeah. But he's, all he does is just complain about how terrible digital music and CDs are. And I, I'm just sat there thinking, can you just shut the fuck up? <laughs> <laughs> it just reminds me of when Tidal launched and you had like Jay-Z and Kanye West and Dead Mouse and everyone lined up saying, oh, when we listened to standard streaming services, it sounded terrible. And you think... Yeah, because your home entertainment system probably costs about a hundred grand. You know, I'm listening mm, to it yeah. on a laptop, and there's absolutely no audible difference. No, I, 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 I don't like people like that either. <laughs> music is just music; just accept it. it. It's, it's not that hard to think. Well. Uh, I think that's about wrapped it up for another episode of Pop Screen. I think by the time we've got from. Frank Zappa to Danny Baker, we've covered enough ground subject-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, for, for now, I think that is uh, all for another week. We will, of course, be back next week. But if you uh, enjoyed this podcast, please give it a like, give it a share, maybe write a review on your podcast provider of choice. That really does help us out an awful lot. Uh, if you're subscribed to our Patreon, you can stand the chance to get a uh, bonus episode of this show every single month, as well as loads of other fun stuff like Doctor Who reviews, Director's Lottery and more. But until next week with more pop screen, uh, I've been Graham. And I've been Aiden. You can find me on Letterboxd under the name Aiden F. Mm-hmm. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>